0: This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at GYCweb.org. Good evening and happy Sabbath, GYC. As we begin this evening, I would like to take the opportunity uh, to thank GYC and everyone that is involved with this great organization. Uh, for the opportunity to stand here before and with you and to be given the privilege to preach the Word of the Lord. Friends, I have been blessed. I hope that you have been blessed. I hope that over the course of these past few days, the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart, and I hope that He does so again this evening. I want to ask you a question. What does love look like? How many of you here would say that you've ever been in love? So how many of you then know? I saw some wives look at their husbands. How many of you know then what love looks like? I would like to take your minds back not too long ago to when a member of the royal family of Britain fell in love with an American divorcee. Who is it that I'm talking about? It is not Harry and Meghan. No, my not so long ago was slightly relative. I'm referring to King Edward and Wallace Simpson. At the passing of King George V, King Edward, the first in line to the throne, humbly took his father's position. Little did he know, however, that his reign would last less than a year. Why? Because the king-to-be had fallen in love. You see, five years before he took the throne, Edward had met Wallace Simpson, and they decided that they were going to get together. The only hindrance with that was really that Wallace was already married, actually for the second time. And so in order to be with the prince and the soon-to-be king, she had to leave her husband and get another divorce, and as they tried every which way to be married, they were met only with opposition. The Church of England didn't take too kindly to the idea of the king marrying a divorcee. And although they tried every avenue to be united in holy matrimony, they were unsuccessful, which left only one option. The king would have to give up the throne. And so he did. 326 days after he became king, in December 1936, King Edward abdicated the throne to his younger brother. Shortly after that, he got married. And they lived happily, at least we would assume so, until he passed in the year of 1972. Friends, I tell you this story because I believe that true love always involves sacrifice. And what greater sacrifice than giving up the throne to be with the one that you love. And so I ask you again, have you ever been in love? The title for my message this evening is The King Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would be present here with us this evening. Father, Lord, we are not worthy. We have sinned against you and against heaven. We are not worthy to be called your daughters or your sons. But Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, will forever be worthy to be called our Savior. And so we ask that he would speak to us this evening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I would like you to turn in your Bibles to First Samuel chapter 18. First Samuel chapter 18. You'll find that just after 1 Samuel 17 when you're there, you can say Amen. First Samuel chapter 18, I believe, presents us with possibly the greatest picture of love outside of the life of Christ. When we think of love, our minds usually just go straight to the romantic. We think of, we think of Adam and Eve, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Ruth and Boaz. We think of David and, well, we think of David and, and maybe many women. But I think that the relationship, I think that the relationship between Jonathan and David is also a picture, if not even more of a picture, of what true love is. And just because two people have a connection and are willing to go to the ends of the earth for one another does not mean that they are romantically involved. Some people interpret this as though there was more than a friendship, but you can have a friendship that shows a complete picture of the love and the character of our God. It is in David's great victory over Goliath in the chapter just prior to this and his subsequent conversation with Saul that we pick up this conversation in 1st Samuel 18 verse 1 it says, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. David had won the heart of Jonathan and I believe that this is a picture of true Christianity. True Christianity is not found in the acceptance of theories, of doctrines, nor in a certain acceptance of lifestyle although doctrine and lifestyle have their place, but the very essence of Christianity is revealed in the outpouring of the heart in devotion to another person. I'll say amen for you. Paul says that without this experience, our religion is but sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. When John spoke of this love in his epistle, he said that if a man claims to love God but hates his brother, then he is a liar. But some of us have taken this to say that in order for our our relationship with with God to remain genuine, all we have to do is not hate our brother. But this is not what John had in mind. John was saying if you hate your brother, then you definitely don't love God. But in reading this, the hope is that you would love all of your brothers and sisters as you claim to love God. It is not enough, friends, to just not hate our Christianity, and our personal relationship with God will always be demonstrated by our ability to love others. Jonathan's heart beat for David. Verse 3 says, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. This is not the normal connection, I might add, that you normally find between two men. You see, when you have when, when you look at relationships that females make, they seem to usually connect on an emotional level. They're happy to share with one another. They'll even, they'll even go as far as to touch one another, to hug one another, to encourage one another, to console one another. But oftentimes, men aren't like that. That's not to say if you're like that, you're not a manager, seems to not be the norm. And maybe this is a generalization, maybe I'm just speaking about myself here, but actually what I have found is that men kind of seem to bond over action instead of emotion. We like to do things, we like to come together and plan some sort of adventure or something that we could possibly overcome, and we usually don't have to talk on the way to doing that. It's not unimaginable for a group of guys who are excited about something that they are about to do, to head in the same place, in the same car, and to remain unbearably silent in that vehicle, even though they're all really looking forward to what they're about to do. They're loving it. (laughs) They're connecting. They're getting to know one another better through silence. Jonathan and David, I believe, are connecting on the deepest of levels. They're connecting on a spiritual level. Sure, there's a lot of similarities. They're probably close in age, similar backgrounds in that they've grown up fighting Jonathan, grown up fighting people, David, grown up fighting animals. But where they connect really is in their desire to give their lives to serve God. And I wish that more of us as young people would connect on that level. I encourage my fellow young people, to look to make friends with those that can actually bring you closer to God. It's too easy to just connect with people that are similar to us, that look like us, and dress like us, and like the same things that we do we ought to look to connect with people that want to pray with us that want to pray for us that are concerned with our spiritual life and with our eternal life because I believe that those are the friends that will stick with us until the end. Verse 4 however is where I really want to labor the Bible says in 1st Samuel chapter 18 verse 4 and Jonathan stripped himself Of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments even to his sword and to his bow and to his belt. Friends do you know who Jonathan is? He is the Prince of Israel. His garments and his robe they represent who he is. They testify that he is next in line to the throne and this is not merely just an exchange of clothing. If you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 41 from verse 37 onwards, the Pharaoh recognizes in Joseph that this truly is a man in whom God resides with. And so what the Pharaoh does, if you read verse 42, it says, and Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand. He arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Pharaoh was showing Joseph that by giving him new clothing, a ring, and a chain that symbolically Joseph's very identity in the, king, in the kingdom of Egypt was also changing and here Jonathan is doing the same thing. Friends I want you to understand the sacrifice that is taking place here. Jonathan has spent the last few years preparing to be the next king of Israel. The blessing of heaven is clearly already upon him. He is moved by divine impulses to go forth and slay the Philistines. He believes that God can use one man to change the course of history, and he arguably has already become that one man because the Bible testifies that Israel stands on that day because Jonathan was used by the Lord to save them. But God had also chosen David to be Saul's successor and not Jonathan. The thing is, nobody had told Jonathan that. But catch this, his heart is so in tune with his creator and his love for his friend David is so great that he gives up the throne so that David can have it instead. He says to David, my friend, I love you so much. I will give up everything that I am so you can be everything that God wants you to be. Friends, that's love. And don't miss the part where Jonathan gives David his sword. This is important. David doesn't have a sword. I mean, why would a shepherd need a sword? The insinuation is that when David went to war against the bear and the lion, that he killed them with his bare hands. It says that he grabbed the beast by its beard. He had no sword. When he went to take on Goliath, he didn't have a sword. He, he used stones. In fact, he even, he even rejected Saul's sword because it says he, haven't, he hadn't proved it. David did not have a sword. In fact, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13 from verse 22 onwards, no one in Israel had a sword. The only two men that had a sword were both Saul and Jonathan. In Jonathan giving his sword to David, he was not just saying that you will take my place as the next in line of the throne. He said, you will take my place as the leader of this great nation in battle. Have you realized that it's from this point forth that David goes out with Saul's army and when he returns, the women are there singing that Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Of course, they're the men that have killed the most. They're the only men with swords. Friends, Jonathan gives up his position, not begrudgingly not sulking that God had chosen someone else over him and he wasn't going to get the spotlight his heart was overflowing with love and his decision was that which poured out of his heart naturally and I think that that my friends is love I've come to the conclusion that that love is the most unnatural love that exists in our world today when God sent his son I believe he sent him to show us how to love, but not necessarily how to love romantically. The love of God is the greatest love, yet it is not a romantic love. When a, when a widow loses their spouse and we tell them that God will be their spouse, we are not talking in a, in a romantic sense. We are saying that God will devote himself to you in as much as any husband or wife would devote themselves to you. Loving romantically, I would bid to you this evening, is actually not that hard. In many cases it seems to come naturally. It is loving unselfishly that is our greatest challenge. And I think it is completely evident within our church today that that is the case. Because there has always and there will always be issues that we do not agree on. But friends theological differences do not have to lead to the disowning of Christian attitudes. If we cannot love those who we disagree with, even though we're part of the same faith, how we possibly love our enemies? When Christ was giving His Sermon on the Mount, He taught that this is real perfection. This is the character of the Father, to bless the righteous and the unrighteous, to love one's enemies. Friends, I think that God knew we would struggle in this issue, this issue of loving one another. And let me tell you why I think this is evident. As Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in the law of God. Can you say amen? But we must look at the whole law as it is. And I encourage you especially to look at it not as a list of do's and don'ts, but rather look at the last six commandments from the perspective of how breaking them actually hurts others. You see, when we break the fifth, we're hurting our parents. When we break the sixth, we're taking the lives of others. When we break the seventh, we're destroying other people's marriages. When we break the eighth, we're stealing from others. When we break the ninth, we're lying from others. When we break the tenth, we're jealous of others. Friends, if we saw that it was important for God to tell us to remember the Sabbath because we would forget, then how or what does it tell us that he asked us to love one another six times in a row and then wrote it in stone? It tells us that he knows our nature. I've realized this in marriage. Those that are married will know that I'm talk- what I'm talking about. On our marriage day, my wife and I declared to love one another. And from that day forward, God has been showing us how to actually love. And friends, I'll be completely honest and completely transparent with you. Marriage is the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. It's the most beautiful and the most rewarding and the most satisfying thing that I've ever done in my life, but it's also the most difficult because every day I wake up, my concern is not who's lying next to me, but who's lying next to the person that's lying next to me. My concern is me because every day that I rise up from my bed my battle is with self and marriage reminds me of how selfish I can be yesterday we were at a seminar and someone asked how you can know if marriage is for you my answer was simple check your pulse because if you're alive then it's likely that marriage is for you if you're alive. It's because God wants you in the kingdom, and it seems that marriage is designed almost solely for that purpose. Marriage is all about putting someone else before yourself. And friends, I believe that that is the mind of Christ. Why do I say this? In Philippians chapter two from verse three, it says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. This mind, the mind of Christ, is the mind where you esteem others as being better than yourselves. I know this isn't an amen sermon. No one likes to hear these things. Paul says that we should not conform to this world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That, my friends, is the gospel, to take the mind of Christ. How do you know if the gospel is really taking hold of your life? You esteem others better than yourself. What does that mean? It means to respect. It means to admire. It means to approve of someone more than you approve of yourself. But if you really believed that the others out there were greater than you, it would not just be a false humility of admitting, "Oh yes, everyone is better than I am." No, no, no. If you truly esteemed others better, better than yourself, then you, my friends, would sacrifice yourselves for them. Is the gospel that you believe in calling you to sacrifice what you have so that others can prosper to a greater degree than you? Shortly after I became a Christian, I had to leave my home, the lifestyle that I had chosen to live, wasn't mixing so well with my family's lifestyles, and I was asked to leave. I had nowhere to go. It might be a stretch to say that I was homeless, but I didn't have anywhere to stay, at least for a few hours. It was only a few hours because I received a phone call from one of my closest friends now. His name is Clive Coutet. I think some of you already know him, and he called me that morning and he said, Dean, is everything okay? I woke up this morning with a burden for you and I prayed for you and I just want you to know that if anything's wrong, if you're ever in trouble or you ever need somewhere to stay I just want you to know that I've got your back I looked at my phone I looked up at the sky I looked back at my phone and I said well, actually <laughs> it's funny that you say that And I explained the situation to him. It took me about two hours to get to his house. And when I got there, he opened the door and standing just behind him was his mother and his father. And I'll never forget the moment when his mom came up to me, wrapped her arms around me, and said, we are your parents now. We are your family now. This is your home now. You can stay with us for as long as you want. And friends, at no point did they ever ask me for rent money. At no point did they ever ask me to chip in with money for food. And and, and to push it out even further, as I made my way through the embraces that I know I didn't deserve, Clive took me upstairs to his bedroom and introduced me to my new bedroom. He'd moved out all of his stuff in that time. In fact, he moved into his dad's computer editing room. He lived literally under a table that, in all honesty, had so many VHS cassettes stored on top of it, it looked like it could collapse at any moment. Friends, it was on that day that I saw what real Christianity looked like. On that day, I saw what true love looked like. And it made a difference in my life. It showed me that the love of God was actually in the hearts of people. I saw real love that day because I saw in others that they were willing to give up their comfort, their home, and their money for me who they barely knew. I saw people that for some reason esteemed me higher than they esteemed themselves. And friends, I want to encourage you that your acts of service and your kind words, when you put yourselves out there for others, You have no idea the kind of impact you could have on a single life. I don't know if I would still be in the faith today were it not for the Kute family. Because that's where I was first shown the real character of God. And that's why I believe that the story of friendship that we find in 1st Samuel chapter 18 is one of the clearest pictures of the actual love of God. Because it is a near perfect representation of what Christ does for you and I. Christ stood there watching as man came up against a great giant, except this time the giant, the serpent, was victorious. Man had fallen into sin, but the heart of the Son of God, not just Jonathan, was knit with the soul of man, not just David, and Jesus loved us as his own soul. And in response to that love, Jesus and Mad made a covenant because he loved us as his own soul. A covenant, friends, was made on the cross. The cross of Calvary is the testimony of love. It is the testimony of the Son of God who looked upon you and I and esteemed us higher than himself. It's the testimony of one who owned all the riches of heaven but but agreed to lay all of that aside so that you and I could pick those riches back up. It is the testimony of a God that would become man and walk on this earth for 33 and a half years, the most this world could endure, and then suffer the most excruciatingly painful and agonizing death, separating himself from the Father so that you and I could be reunited with that Father. But he does not just offer us his death, he offers us his life. He offers us more than justification, he offers us sanctification. He places his robe upon us just as Jonathan placed his upon David. He gives us that robe of righteousness. Friends, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He gives us his garments. He gives us his sword. Jesus Christ gave up everything for you and I. Just as Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne and gave it up for David, so too was Jesus, the rightful king of heaven, yet he gave up his crown so that he could crown us. Friends, Jonathan was a kingmaker. He laid aside his position so that David could be king and I want to propose to you this evening that Jesus too is a kingmaker. He gave up his throne so that you and I could sit on it next to his father. Friends, Jesus could not see through the portals of the tomb. That is love. Jesus could not see a resurrection for himself. He hung on the cross and endured it. He found joy in it, firm in his conviction that if he was never reunited with his father, it would be okay because of the chance that you and I would be. That's love. As Satan wrung the heart of God, his heart was given for us. He trod the winepress alone so that you and I would not have to. And to top it all off, Christ's death, Paul says, was for us while we were yet sinners. And so I bid to you to dispel this false ideology that we must come to God right. The plea is to come. Come to Him. Do not expend efforts trying to fix your life before you come to Jesus, because you will fail and you will fail and you will fail again. I have so many of my young people come to me, and Mr. Dean, how do we know if we're ready for baptism? And I tell them the same thing every time. You know that you're ready to give your hearts to the Lord when you think that you're not ready to give your heart to the Lord because it is in that feeling it is that understanding that you cannot do this that makes it the most opportune time to actually give him your heart because you will therefore dispel with any notion that the changes that are happening in your life are happening because of you how do you know it's the right time to come to God because you think it might not be because your trust in self is gone don't wait until you work it back up don't wait until you've made a few corrections don't wait until you've fixed up your mess come So my appeal tonight is for a very specific group of people. My appeal tonight is only for sinners. Friends heaven was poured out for you, Jesus wants to make you a king and a queen in heaven. The Bible says that greater love hath no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his brothers. And the Bible says that it is a greater blessing to give than to receive. Friends that is not a verse for tithe. That is a God-given principle. That it is a greater blessing to give than to receive. Friends, the Father looked around heaven and noticed that you weren't in it. He saw that you weren't there, but he esteems you so much higher than himself that it was a greater blessing for him to give his son than to receive him. And so young people here of GYC, I present to you the same opportunity. It will be a greater blessing for you to give your life to God than to receive it unto yourself. And as my sister-in-law comes forward to sing this appeal song, I encourage you all to consider making that decision today. Consider finally giving your life to God. Consider trusting Him with your life. Consider giving Him everything that you have so that He can use you to make a difference in the home, in the school, and in the workplace, wherever you are. Friends, it will be the greatest decision that you ever make. And to my young people especially, if you feel the Spirit of God moving you to esteem the love of God higher than the pleasures of this world. If the Spirit of God has been speaking to you throughout these past few days here at GYC and encouraging you and moving your heart to pour out to Him everything that you have. If today you say that you want to give the Lord your life, I encourage you as you listen to these words to come to the front so that we can pray and confirm that commitment.
1: It seems I'm finding more of why in these moments Feels like I'm made to sing of how good you are The more the years swell by past Each second more than last It's true by far thoughts or clever eyes.
0: when you look down the list of kings of Israel, you will not see Jonathan's name. You will see David's name, but you will not see Jonathan's name. But listen to this, Jonathan by birth heir to the throne, yet knowing himself set aside by the the divine decree to his rival the most tender and faithful of friends, shielding David's life at the peril of his own steadfast at his father's side through the dark days of his declining power and at his side falling at the last. The name of Jonathan is treasured in heaven and it stands on earth a witness to the existence and to the power of unselfish love. Friends, your name too can be written in heaven. In fact, your name too can be written in heaven right now. And so I appeal especially to those of you here this evening that have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ through baptism. If that is your desire, if you want to say, Lord, I want to give you everything today. I want to give you everything from this day forward for the rest of my life. Today you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ. I ask that you raise your hand. Keep it high. We're going to wait just a few seconds. If you desire to make that commitment today, if you want to respond to this love, if you want to accept the crown that Jesus Christ has laid aside for you, then raise your hand high. GYC, can you say amen? Amen. We praise the Lord for the Spirit of God and now let us come together to pray and confirm those decisions that have been made. Brother Jim. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.